Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter number 18. If you want to turn there, it's the first book of the New Testament, direct link between the Old Testament and New Testament, representing Christ as King. Jesus is King. That song is a powerful song. Casting Crowns made it popular years ago. It resonates today um, for you to praise God in a storm is only possible when you understand that he is king and he is sovereign. He's in control. And if you don't hear anything else the second time I say today, God is righteous. It'll, it'll fix a lot of your troubles in life as a Christian when you understand and own up to the reality that God is righteous. Everything he does is right. Everything he is is right, even when it doesn't seem right. He is king, he's sovereign, he's in control. Think about that, a lot of emotions go on in Father's Day, there are people all over this building who have lost their father, uh, come up in broken homes, have some issues with fathers, and uh, I am very well aware that every Mother's Day, every Father's Day, uh, we have a, a plethora of different emotions, going on. It's unfortunate uh, that we live in a day and age to where we have some of the issues that shouldn't be. I spoke to the Brotherhood men's meeting a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'm pretty transparent. I'm pretty black and white, not a lot of gray. I like to call a spade a spade, as some say. And I think once we own up to the realities of life, it helps us bear with the issues of life. And a lot of us in this room have grown up, and maybe you're growing up in a family or a situation that just isn't right. And um, maybe it worked out. Maybe it's working out. Maybe there are kinks that we are working out. And here's what I know. Um, God is sovereign. He is righteous. But his plan was not for it to be the way it is. I didn't say he's not in control, but a lot of what's going on in our society, especially in our country, was not God's plan. Man has messed it up. Sin has corrupted. And there are consequences to sin, and one of the biggest, most obvious consequences to sin is corruption. Political, family, even church, corruption, sin corrupts, sin destroys. There are and always will be consequences for sin. And many of us in this room and in churches all over the country are dealing with the ramifications of sin that corrupted a situation that God didn't plan for it to be that way. In Matthew chapter 18, I want us to read a familiar passage of Scripture. I told the brotherhood then 
And I told the church last week, which was the biggest mistake, I said, make sure you come next Sunday. And of all the weeks in the year, I've had more texts and conversations that, I just want to let you know, we won't be there Sunday. <laughs> like, and I don't mean two or three. I mean like two or three team. And um, I was, I'm glad you're here because I expected it to be me and a couple families here today. But I appreciate you being here, and I know there are people watching. I know there are people on vacation. But um, I am convinced that the topic that I'm going to talk about today, that Jesus talked about today, is one of the most important lessons Jesus ever taught. I believe the lesson that's taught in this parable in Matthew chapter 18 is a lesson and a subject Subject that has affected, is affecting, and will affect every single person that has breath in their lungs at some point in their life. I believe it's affecting churches today. More specifically and more importantly, I believe the subject matter of Matthew 18 is negatively impacting believers right now in this building, and in churches all over the country. In Matthew chapter 18, I want us to stand as we honor God's word. Verses 21 through 35 are actually the text, but I'm just going to read verses 21 through 27. Jesus has just taught about restoration, or in some cases, disfellowshipping. How ironic that that happened this week, rightfully so. He had talked about, and I got, you have to get this context, everybody relax. He had said, you know, if, um, if you got an ought against a brother, a brother has an ought against you. This, this is just a little sermonette. Maybe somebody needs to hear this. Go to that person, try to fix it. If they're a believer, by the way, believers do have ought against other believers. Because not all of us are perfect. And so if you've got a problem or somebody's got an alt or an issue, you go to that person, not to Facebook. Well, I'm not going to name names, but they're about six foot two, dark hair, getting gray, and preaches at a church locally. And let me figure that one out. Who's that? Who could that be? If you go to that person, you fix it. If it doesn't fix, then you take a couple witnesses, not lawyers, not lost folks. Christians and say, hey, let's settle this. Let's get this fixed. And if they say no, then you bring them before the church. Whoa. Amen, brother. No. Shouldn't get that far. If you're a Christian, if you got the Holy Spirit living within you, you ought to be able to fix it. You ought to be able to pray. You ought to say, sorry. Sorry, you're sorry. Thanks for being sorry. Let's move on together. But if it doesn't get that far, you bring them to church and say, hey, now, I got a sneaky suspicion they won't show up that day. But anyway, and then if they still don't, you say, well, we're done with you. That was the lesson Jesus had just taught. And don't we all love Peter? Peter, mouth and wealth of wisdom says, then came Peter to him, verse 21, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven? Is that a good number, Jesus? 
Now you have to know that the law and the priests would follow that you had to do it at least three times. So Peter was being very generous and said, Jesus, how about, what do you think about seven? A good Christian would do it seven times. And Jesus says, no, I'll tell you, 70 times seven. I can imagine what Peter's response was, but he doesn't say anything else. He's probably doing the math. He probably knew his times tables because they taught it back then. Yeah. <laughs> no, 70 times seven. Therefore, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which would take account of his servants. He would have a reckoning day. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought to him which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down and worshiped him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him. I'm not going to preach that, but you need to hear and loosed him. And loosed him. And forgave him the debt. Father, thank you for your word. We believe it's absolute truth. We believe it's sufficient for all of our needs. I pray you teach us today through your word and your Holy Spirit that we will be listeners and doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to preach for as long as it takes today because we don't have an evening service tonight. On this thought, the power of forgiveness. The power of forgiveness. Mark Twain said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that crushed it. It's not scripture, but it's pretty wise. Our text as I said, follows Jesus' instruction about restoration of a brother. By the way, that's the plan is restoration, not kicking them out. Peter's response to this lesson in verse 21 is, how often should I forgive him? The word there, forgiveness, is important. And I told you to take note of what Jesus said when the king forgave him, he loosed him. The word here, forgiveness, means to, to send. It's to omit. It's to, to lose someone. Don't have time to unpack it, but it's in the same word that means to suffer. But it's to send someone. And by the way, I'll just throw it out there. There's some suffering involved in forgiveness. There's some hurt. There's some pain. There's some sacrifice. And Jesus said the king loosed him and he forgave him. Peter says, how many times is seven good, Lord? Because a good Christian would do it at least seven times. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And there are people who still argue in books today as to whether that means 490 or 77. Which the reality is it means an unlimited amount of forgiveness. An abundance of forgiveness. Now, this will help some of you pay attention the rest of the way. Real quick time out. He doesn't say to stay around that person long enough to have to forgive them 490 times. And there's some biblical truth to that. 
I mean, if the same person keeps doing something that requires your forgiveness, you need some new friends. That's biblical, by the way. I didn't say hate them. I didn't say talk bad about them. But the point here is Jesus said, our forgiveness as a believer is an abundance, in abundance. It's unlimited. He teaches this lesson in a parable, in an allegory, and he gives the example of a king who has servants. And the servants obviously are already owing to the king. They're subjects of the kingdom. But I want you to look at verse 23, because how I started this, I, I started it on purpose. It's intentional what I say most of the time up here. We need to pay close attention to what Jesus is teaching here. Verse 23, he says, Jesus says, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like this. I've said this before and it's, I practice it. Anytime in scripture we see God mad, we need to listen up. And I wanna tell you, professing believer, anytime you see in scripture where Jesus or God says the kingdom of heaven is like this, we better perk up, wake up, and listen. He's not playing around. He's not saying it'd be great if the kingdom of heaven was like this. He's not saying it'd be great if churches acted like this. He's saying the kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, where I am king, is like what I'm about to say. So you can't leave here and say, well, I'm not sure that preacher knew what he was talking about. Or you certainly can't say, well, I'm not sure that's what Jesus meant. He starts off and says, my kingdom is like this. So we ought to sit up and say, let's hear what it's like. And this is the example. This is the illustration. This is the picture he paints about what the kingdom of God looks like. And if you're not connecting the dots here, I want to connect them for you. If you're not practicing what he's about to teach, you're not part of the kingdom of God. Do I need to read it out of a couple more versions? It gets our attention. Jesus knew this. He knew, listen to me people, please. He knew what he's about to teach was a problem and would be a problem for millennia to come. Forgiveness. Kingdoms like this. It gets our attention. And I think it's gotten our attention because it's only 1128 and you seem like you're ready to go home. <laughs> In this parable, I believe, and I want to make this simple and quick and as painless as possible. Jesus in this parable provides the example of forgiveness and the expectation of forgiveness. And first in verse 24, he says, this king began to reckon. He began to take account of those who owed him. And he calls the first person in. And I want you to get this. The king says, um, this guy owes 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents in those days was one billion days worth of wages. Now, as I was doing the math, because I like math, 
Immediately, my mind went to the national debt. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. But when I, when I tell you what I'm about to tell you, it, it'll make you just want to go vomit somewhere. I don't know, just do something. Just don't do it on the carpet in here. Go outside. He owed 10,000 debts. He owed one billion days worth of a peasant's wages, which was more money that was actually circulating in the whole area of Palestine in that day. This is a story. This is a picture. This is a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a parable. That means he would have to live and work 1.7 million years to pay this debt off. You see the picture Jesus is painting. He ain't paying it. He can't pay it. No way he could ever pay the debt he owes to the king. Impossible. But verse 25, but as much as he had not to pay. Listen to this. Oh, there's so much in this, and I know where I want to go, and I know when I need to get there. But I hope you'll hear, read, and let the Holy Spirit teach you what I can't teach today. But this guy didn't have enough to pay he was commanded to be sell everything. Do you understand? Even if he was sold or he was traded and, and all of his commodities were, were added up, it still would fail miserably in comparison to what he owed. There was nothing he had that was worth 1.7 million years of wages. He couldn't pay it back. The king says, sell everything. I'm going to take what he what I can get out of him. And the servant fell down and worshiped him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. There's a, a sermon within verse 26, but I can't do it today. The man was saying something, but I want us to look more importantly at how Jesus responded in verse 27. The Lord of that servant, the king said, the king was moved with compassion. Moved with him. He was king. This guy owed him. This guy owed him more than he could ever pay. But the king moved with compassion. There's a wealth of verses in scripture where Jesus looks at the crowd and has compassion over them. It's a word for pity, seeing them in a state of need. And Jesus looked over the, the people and he wept. In John eleven thirty five, 35, because he had compassion for them, seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. Many times when Jesus healed, the Bible says he had compassion on them. He had pity on them, and he healed them. This king uses the same word of compassion on this man. He sees him in a state of needs. It's, a, it's not just a, oh, I feel so sorry for you. It's a, it's a deep, emotional, internal the Bible uses the word bowels of compassion. This is how the king looked at the man who owed more than he could ever pay. His response in verse 27 was driven by this compassion. In verse 27, he says, loose him and he forgave him the debt. It wasn't because the man said, I'll work it off. It wasn't because the man said, let me go home and sell all I've got and pay you what I owe. 
or pay a little bit of what I owe. It wasn't because the man uh, was willing to pay what he owed. It was because of the compassion of the king that he received forgiveness. The reality is, and some of you have been in church more than a couple weeks or following with me. The reality is, Jesus is king. The reality is, he has the ability to provide and pronounce divine judgment, a reckoning. And the reality is every person that's ever been born of a woman owes a debt that they could never pay the king. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We were born into sin because of the fall of Adam and Eve and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. We all owe a debt that we could never pay the king. We could beg him to let us work. We could say we'll sell everything and give it to the poor, but that's not what it takes. There's nothing you and I could do, have ever done, or will ever be able to do to pay for our sin. It was through the king's compassion that he offered forgiveness for our sin debt. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God commended, he demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, while we were still debtors, while we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we started to go into church for a while, not after we cut our hair, not after we bought a suit, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes into great detail in Romans chapter 4. We've studied this in Romans on Wednesday night, and he says, now it was not written for his sake alone, talking about Abraham and his faith, and because he said Abraham was counted righteous. It says he was not, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. In the king's compassion, he imputed the righteousness of his son into our account. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that you and I might be made the righteousness of God. God's imputation of Christ's righteousness in your account and in my account as a born-again Christian had nothing to do with my ability to pay him back. The king is Jesus. The compassion is from Jesus. The love is from God. For those who trust in Jesus as Lord, God zeroes out our sin debt. Our sin debt was far more than 1.7 years of wages. We owed more than we could ever possibly fathom. And when we place our faith and trust in Christ, the imputation of our sin, forgiveness for our sin, trust in him as Lord, our account is zero. We had no righteousness. 
There is none righteous. You heard this verse before? No, not one. He goes on to say there's none who even seek after God, so don't even think you're halfway spiritual. I go, well, I was looking for God, and you know, he came, I came to church, and there he was. That's not biblical, by the way. Well, I did. Well, read the Bible and figure out what you really did. How about that? That hurt somebody's feelings. I'm sorry. No, the Bible says we're all wicked. We're all sinful. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? There's none who seek after God. See, if you start thinking, I went to church looking for God, you'll start to think you did something to earn it. And you didn't. And I didn't. Know about you, but I showed up for church to hang out and play. And he was there. He was waiting on me. I wasn't looking for him. And sitting listening to that man right there teach. Only God knows what he was teaching. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, hey, you're lost. You've never been saved. And what he was really saying is you owe a debt that you could never pay. But I love you. And I have compassion on you. And I'm offering you forgiveness of your sin if you'll trust in Jesus. And I'll impute on you in your account his righteousness. And you can stand before God one day, justified, just as if you'd never sinned because of your trust in Jesus. And this king, in compassion, canceled out his debt. The gospel teaches that Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was born of a virgin. Didn't inherit the sin nature of man. He healed people of sicknesses. He healed the blind. He raised people from the dead. He taught as no one had ever taught before. The Bible says, and I, I know we like the miracles, but I want you to think about this. The Bible says that he, everywhere he went, he only did good. Now, I know some people that are super nice. I'm like, man, something's wrong with them, or they're fake, or they got a gene mutation. I don't know. But they're always like, hey, everybody, how y'all doing? Never have a bad day. I know a few of those. But Jesus only did good. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was God in the flesh. Imagine that perfect, sinless, loving, compassionate, only doing good man being laughed at, being mocked, being ridiculed, being stripped of his clothes, being beaten, being whipped beyond human recognition, the psalmist says. Games played for his clothes in a public square. Spitting in his face. Punching him in the face while he could not defend himself. Weaving a crown of thorns and thrusting it on his head and seeing the blood gush. All in an attempt to just make fun. Lifeless nearly unrecognizable, nailed to a cross, raised and thumped in the ground, groaning, crying, 
hurting. While the world watches in laughter, as if they had accomplished something. And on that cross, that perfect, sinless, miracle-working, only good to every person says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the example of forgiveness. I would have probably said this later, but there's nobody in here who's had something done to you worse than what humanity did to Jesus. Yeah, we've had a few rocks and tumbles and some shakes and some ups and downs, but nobody, none of us, have experienced what he experienced. And he is the example. He is the king who in compassion looks at those who, while they were still sinners, he died for them and forgave them. And he expects us to do the same. He's the example, but there's an expectation. And the rest of this passage of scripture, the same guy who was just forgiven of more than he ever could pay goes and finds somebody that owes him a dollar. The Bible says, the King James says they laid hands on him. It wasn't with anointing oil. It says he grabs him by the neck, pay me what you owe me. And there were some snitches in town. Bible says they saw this and they got a little upset and they went and told on them, told the king. Now I want you to listen in what verse 32 and 33 says. But before we read it, I want to remind you of this. Remind me of this. Y'all ready? This is like the kingdom of heaven. That's the premise of this whole parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The king who's now forgiven finds out that you're not forgiving, and he says, come, let's have a little talk. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you desired me. He calls him wicked, and then he expresses his expectation for the servant to forgive. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Do you hear the expectation of the king? Hey, you received more compassion. You received more forgiveness. There was another time where Jesus had to talk with Peter and said, hey, this one owed this, this one owed this, this one you think loves me more, the one that owed more. Hey, there it is. You were forgiven more than you could ever pay, and now you go say, oh, you owe me $5, and you strangle the guy. Shouldest thou not had more or had compassion like I had for you? There's an expectation for the believer to forgive as he or she has been forgiven. Now, I know some of you are getting ahead of me. Just hold on. 
I'm going to cover all those points you're thinking about in 15 minutes. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Y'all know it? Some of you know it in Spanish, thanks to Miss Lyndall Campbell. But there's a part in there where Jesus says, this is how you're to pray, believer. Y'all ready for this one? Forgive us of our trespasses, our sins. Ready? As we forgive those who trespass or sin against us. There's an expectation. If you haven't heard that word yet, there's an expectation for the believer to forgive those who sin against them. The king says, hey, you should have. I expect you to. You ought to have better sense than to do that knowing what you've been forgiven of. The reality is, and I've said this for a while, and it's very applicable here, only a believer, only a truly born-again believer has the ability to forgive the way God expects. Because only a truly born-again believer has experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ. Probably should sit there until a while. Because I know, I know, I'm feeling it. All of the excuses, which was a third point, but for your health and sanity, I eliminated it. Because it was an E and it went right along. We have excuses. We have reasons. And I don't have time to cover them all. But every person in this room who has or ever has had or will have difficulty forgiving has a reason for why. Now, I'd like to say I've got an answer for every reason, but I have an answer. And the answer is if you and I have received the forgiveness of God, we have the ability to forgive others. We do. In the flesh, you don't. I'll be the first to stand in line and say, hey, I got the answer, teacher. In the flesh, we can't forgive like Jesus did. But in the spirit, filled with the spirit, we can. Empowered by the spirit, we can. Remember, this is how the kingdom of heaven looks. When God takes account, when God takes his account, it's divine judgment. In the king's anger, there were consequences. Now remember, this is how the kingdom of heaven works. Jesus said it. Not me, not the Baptist faith and message. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. King forgives a debt that couldn't be paid. Servant doesn't forgive. You wicked servant. Look at the consequences. In his wrath, in his anger, he delivered him, verse 34, to the tormentors till he should pay all that was doing to him. Stop. I hope you've never missed this, but if you've missed it, now you got it. He was delivered over to the torturers. It's a, it's a picture of torment. Those who practice torment or torture. How long? How long? Till he should pay all that was due on him. Do you remember the beginning? He'll never pay it back. He'll never pay it back. 
in the king's divine account, the, re- the reaction, the response, what happens is eternal punishment. It's a picture of God's economy. It's a picture of God's kingdom. And Jesus is teaching this lesson. And he says, and such is the kingdom of heaven. Pay attention, people. It's what he's saying. The man that doesn't forgive, the woman that doesn't forgive, is cast into eternal torture. It's a picture of eternal judgment. It's, listen, I know I'm losing some of you. I hope not. He's not saying somebody was saved and now they're lost and getting punished. It's not what he's saying. You never find that in Scripture. It's saying to someone who professed to be saved but didn't have the ability to forgive, which was evidence that they weren't saved. And now their, their end is eternal damnation. And such is the kingdom of heaven. This is how it works, is what Jesus is saying. I know I could cover a lot of excuses. I know I could give some Oprah and Joel words of encouragement to help you get through it. Sometimes I wish the I wish things were different. Let's put it that way. And we could just sit and talk. Or me sit and talk and you just sit and listen. Which is kind of what's going on, but I kind of feel like it's a little more tense right now. I try to be honest. I joke about it and say, especially up here. That's supposed to be funny, but... I know that there are people in this room... I'm not saying I've, I got, I've been reading your mail. I'm not saying that. I know there's people in this room who struggle and have struggled and are struggling and will struggle with forgiveness. Casting something away. I've heard words of wisdom like this. Just get over it. That's not even in Proverbs. <laughs> How about this one? Y'all like to... Forgive and forget. Find that one in scripture and write me a book report and I'll give you extra credit. It's not there. Forgiving's there, but forgetting's not. Now I'm gonna cover that real quick. Because I've learned some things. God doesn't want us to forgive and forget. Y'all with me? When we forgive our mind and our natural state, we will remember what we forgave the person for. And when we truly forgive, the reminder of their sin will remind us that we forgave them. There's power in that. You're gonna remember why you forgave them, but you're gonna remember you forgave them. Now, true forgiveness isn't, now, you know I already forgave you for that. (laughs) True forgiveness is casting it off, loosing it. You're loosing them. This is going to be real Joel-like, but you're also loosing yourself. Because when you're unforgiving, when I'm unforgiving, we are creating 
bondage in our own lives. I read this quote a long, long time ago, and I, I think about it often. Unforgiveness or not forgiving is like giving someone poison or drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Unforgiveness hurts you. Unforgiveness is not Christian. Not forgiving is not Christian. It's Father's Day. Y'all figured that out? I was born a different name than I am right now. I had the first and middle name right, but I was born a different biological last name. Some of you know that. There's a lot of new people. I'm not going to tell everything. At about three years of age, my biological dad, who was a, an abusive alcoholic, abused my mom, threatened me. I don't remember it. I was three. She leaves, and about five years of age, she marries a man who's my stepdad. So I got a biological dad, and I got a stepdad at five years of age. Um, trying to give you the clip notes because I know the time. When my mom married my stepdad, I immediately became kind of the middle child, which is not good, I've heard. But my dad, my stepdad had two grown children or older children, and then my mom and my stepdad had my baby brother. I call him my big baby brother because he's bigger than me, but he's my baby brother. I'm immediately the middle, and I don't belong to him, but the other ones do. It just complicates the issue. Some of you have been there, some of you are there, some of you will be there, whatever. I didn't see my biological dad from the time I was about five until the time I was about 42. I was raised by my stepdad. We did not have the greatest relationship. I did love him because I was a believer. I didn't understand all the ramifications. I respected him, partly because I knew the Bible, but I also knew <laughs> the other things. In full disclosure, what I'm about to tell you is not in any way to promote my holiness, but is to provide help. I grew up with him. He did not treat me well. He never physically abused me. I look back now, and I, there's some sovereignty involved in it. My mom, on the other hand, abused me. <laughs> my dad never did. My stepdad never did. But mentally and emotionally, I was, I was tormented by my stepdad. A lot of people didn't know it. The only people inside knew what was going on. It was very unhealthy. It, it, messed, it, it messed with me. I grew up bitter toward him, angry toward him. A lot of in-betweens. I was a believer. Still am. Didn't lose it. Hadn't lost it. I knew what was right, but it was so hard. I was a kid. I was a teenager. And now a teenager becomes a man. And it's difficult to flesh this stuff out, to rationalize this. 
I had a biological dad that I didn't know. I had a stepdad that I knew, and, and honestly, I say this not to be spirit. I, I truly thank God for him. I do. There were some terrible times I don't thank God for, necessarily. Now, if I was real spiritual, I'd say, well, I thank God for those times. But I'm not going to do that. But I do thank God that he was in my life. And um, it, it makes for a lot of fun stories. I hang around, and my friends love to hear my dad's stories. And um, they're not all biblical. And sometimes we have to hit the bleep button. But I watched him work, and I watched him work hard. I learned work ethic from him. He worked in the cotton mill. He was brilliant when it came to that kind of stuff. But outside of that, he wasn't very brilliant. But, um, but he taught me how to work. He, he taught me things that I know how to do today. Whether I wanted to, like, hey, please teach me to work on that car. No, it was like, come over here and give me this. And I was the kind of, it's like, if you've ever had this dad, it was like, the toolbox is over there, and there's nothing organized. And he says, hand me 916th. Because <laughs> you knew if the 916th wasn't handed to him, you were going to get a lesson in language. And um, so that's, I, I learned those things. And I can do those things. And I do those things. There was a lot of lessons to learn. And I appreciate, and I'm not bitter about it at all. But I was extremely bitter as a teenager. As an adult, I was extremely bitter. I had mechanisms to deal with it. I still struggle with the mechanisms I developed to deal with it to this day. I told the brotherhood that secret. You should have been there. You'd know what it is. Some of you know me more than five minutes. You probably already figured out what it is. We got married. A year later, I had a son. I'm just being honest with you. I thought I had suppressed the issues. I was dealing with them. I am at that time old, 36, doing the math quick in my head, ish. Brooks was a surprise. He was about five weeks early. Actually, I turned 36 two days before he was born. I'm 36-year-old man married, about to have the first kid, and I got this stuff on my plate. It's in there. Never really thinking about it. When my son was born, when he came out with a, with a lot of other emotions and things going on, and a lot of surprise, somebody might laugh. You can't prepare for all that. I was listening to a comedian recently, and I was like, amen, brother. I was like, I should get paid for some of the work I did there. I was like, I didn't know I was on staff. But anyway, there's things that you just can't expect. So there's a lot going on. When he comes out, he had some issues, so he was making a funny noise, but he comes out. One of the first thoughts in my mind, I didn't tell my wife, not the, not the right time. One of the first thoughts that hit me was, how could my dad abandon me? In the hospital, in labor, he's there. He's going to be rushed to the NICU in just a matter of minutes. And the first thought that hits my mind is, how could he abandon me? How could a biological dad have nothing to do with his son for 35 years? Now, there's some family members that would say, well, he wrote you and gave you $5 at your birthday. 
I'd been a dad about a total of two minutes. And I knew immediately I would fight the devil and the hell and the armies of the devil and the president and anybody else if somebody tried to take my son out of my presence. Because that's what's right. That's what's godly. That's what's instinctual. I think I've told you this before. Sin corrupts. Sin messes things up. After I'm a dad, somewhere, and I don't have a date and a time, I had a come to Jesus meeting. And I knew until I had forgiven, y'all, this is the most important part of everything I'll say, until I had forgiven the two men in my life who had never apologized and never would apologize. I was going to be in bondage. Not one of those dads ever looked me in the eye and said, I love you. Not one of them ever said, I'm sorry. Not one of them ever said, I made a mistake. Never. Did they owe it to me? Hear the E and the excuses there. They owe it to me. That's not how forgiveness works. You forgive based on what God has given you the ability to do. My mom, who's with the Lord now, going on her second year, probably having a decent time, I think. She's got what I used to call an Oprah story. I won't tell you all the story, but my mom found her real dad in her 40s. See how this works? She finds a real dad. I've never met, shook hands with my biological grandfather. I've seen pictures of him. It's a weird thing. He looks like me. I look like him. I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> really, the only person other than my mom I've ever seen in my life that I look like. We're not really sure if my, that whole story I told you was true. He might not be my biological dad, for all I know. <laughs> we did have a mailman that kind of favored me, but that, no, just stop, stop, stop. <laughs> And he was always real nice and used to give me quarters. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> he offered to pay for school. No, just kidding. Um, Leanne may remember this. I don't know if my wife. Over at my house, probably a year to two years before my mom died. My mom was in her late 60s at this time. And sitting at the table, at the dinner table at my house, I'm counseling my mom. who was struggling with forgiveness. And here's what she kept saying, because now her stepmom is dead, and now her biological mom has died, which was my biological grandmother. And my mom is saying, I just want answers. I just want to know. And now I'll never know. I want to hear why this, this, and this. I didn't pull out Romans or... Until you get to the place where you forgive without answers, you're going to struggle with this. As a believer, we forgive based on the reality that we've been forgiven more than we could ever pay. And only in his power, if you haven't heard this, hear it now, only in his strength can we forgive 
someone else. Nelson Mandela said this. If you know a little bit about Nelson Mandela, this will make sense. As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. There's a lot of Christians in prison because they haven't forgiven. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us so much. It certainly teaches us today what forgiveness really looks like. God, first, I pray if there's a person in this room who's never experienced the forgiveness of their sins by placing their faith and trust in your son, Jesus, I pray today would be the day. They see themselves as you see them, lost. And you've told us in your word that the penalty, the price for sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual, eternal death. And I pray today that your Holy Spirit would convict them that they would see their need for salvation by trusting in your Son who in his righteousness through your love, grace, and mercy you imputed it on, into our account so that we can be made known the righteousness of God. I pray if that person's here today and they need to make that decision that you would give them the boldness and the faith to make you Lord of their life. And God, lastly, and maybe as important in some ways, if there's a believer here today and they're struggling, they've been struggling with forgiveness and forgiving, I pray today something that you said in your word would give them what they stand in need of to make a decision to forgive. Knowing and realizing they can't do it in their own strength, that they need your help. And the help comes from the knowledge of knowing that you forgave us, unworthy sinners who were at enmity, an enemy of you. You loved us and you established and extended grace and mercy not of anything we've done, not of our works, but through your grace and mercy. And I pray in knowing that reality that they would have the ability to loose people, to loose themselves, to grow in grace and knowledge of your word and become more like you. As we sing this morning, I want us to stand. The altars are open. If you want to come to an altar in a time of prayer, if you want to pray where you're Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.